So please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning from Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned." And so Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people... You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. It's God's, uh, God's word for his people today. You may be seated. And let's pray now once again and ask for God's help. So, Father, as we have just sung, we now pray that you would show us Christ, that you would reveal to us his glory as your spirit gives us eyes to see his glory in the pages of Esther. We pray that you would feed us on your word, that you would give us eyes to see glorious truths in it, that you would be gracious to us so that we might feast on your word and love your word and do your word as we continue to live in your world as your people for the glory of your name we pray, amen. When's the last time you had a night where you just couldn't sleep? Maybe you're like last night. And now you're about to fall asleep because it's nice and warm in here and you're sitting down finally. No. What, often it's because you've got something on your mind. Just going over and over and over. There's concerns that you're just not sure how are going to work out. But there's other times, isn't there, where you're just staring at the ceiling 
There's seemingly no good reason why you're not tired at all, and the hours just tick by, and no matter what you do, sleep just will not come. Well, that's the kind of night King Ahasuerus had as Esther 6 begins. You recall his day began with Esther entering his presence without invitation, and when he extends his golden scepter to her, showing her mercy rather than condemnation, he asks her what would cause her to do such a thing and offers assurance that he will do whatever she wants. But rather than asking for a way out of Haman's genocidal edict that was sealed with the king's signet ring, she asks him to bring Haman to a feast. And so when the feast was over and the wine course had been served, he asked her again and offered her assurance again that he would do whatever she wanted, so please tell him her request. And again, Esther demurs and defers and says, come back tomorrow with Haman to another feast, and then I will tell you my request. So Haman, now been invited twice to a banquet with just the king, and the queen goes home on top of the world, only to pass by Mordecai on his way out of the palace, who will not stand or pay homage to him. And his elation, his monumental joy, is now overwhelmed by his greater fury at one single man not giving him honor. And so he arrives home and he gathers his wife and his friends and he sits them down to tell them a story about how great he is, how amazing he is, all his accomplishments, all his wealth, all his sons. How amazing is Haman? Yet, all of it means nothing to him, he says, as long as Mordecai continues to dishonor him. So his wife and his wise friends tell him to big, build gallows 75 feet high in the sky and tell the king, or ask the king to put Mordecai on it. And that pleased Haman, who all of a sudden forgot how mad he was, and now he's giddy with joy that he might see the downfall of his enemy. So he has the gallows immediately built and plans to see the king first thing in the morning. And so as the night falls on Susa, gallows are being built. We find the king cannot sleep. Makes you wonder if Haman slept that night. I imagine he did. I mean, he's so blind in his pride, he doesn't think anything's going to go wrong for him. But perhaps Haman's a little giddy, and he's just too excited to sleep at the prospect of Mordecai's downfall. We're also not told, but we wonder if Mordecai slept. We assume he's sleeping like a baby, unaware that his death is just hours away. Night falls, the city sleeps, but King Ahasuerus is sleepless. And even if Mordecai was aware and was fretting all night at his impending doom, what could Mordecai do about it? There's nothing really he could do, even if he was aware. And that's kind of a scary thought, if not for Psalm 4. Psalm 4 says this, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Even if Mordecai could do something about it, he's not omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent. 
And so he is not up to the task of always keeping himself safe. But we can have peace when we lie down if the Lord is your Lord. And peace doesn't mean that you don't have any problems. Peace means wholeness. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It means harmony. It means God's favor is fully upon you. And so real peace, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of circumstances that you can do nothing about, real peace can be yours if the Lord is your Lord. Because real peace is a sense of of confidence. Not that the trials will always turn out how you want or how you think they should, but that they'll ultimately turn out for your good because God's favor is upon you. So you can sleep in peace knowing God alone makes you dwell in safety. Now you, you may not be able to do anything about all that lies before you, but that's not where peace comes from. Peace comes from knowing the God who can and who will keep his people safe because they are his. That's where real peace comes from. And we see this in the three scenes of Esther chapter 6, that the Lord makes his people dwell in safety. Three scenes of Esther 6, sleepless in Susa, trading places, and gospel hope. So first, sleepless in Susa. While Mordecai sleeps, God begins to bring about his salvation by keeping Ahasuerus sleepless. Now the phrase here uh, is more emphatic than just Ahasuerus can't sleep. Like he's just right there, but he just can't get over the, the edge of sleep. The phrase is actually sleep flees from him. So he's not on the edge of sleep. He's not even close. Sleep has run away from Ahasuerus as far as it can. He's wide awake. And he's got nothing else to do, so he tells his servants to get the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and read it to him. Now, many commentators think this is an attempt to have something boring read so he can fall asleep. Now, historians note that the Chronicles are filled with boring statistics about citizens and taxes and tables and all sorts of numbers. So maybe there there are boring ports, but these Chronicles are also filled with the king's exploits. Often these chronicles did not contain all the king's defeats in the wars, just his great exploits. And so chapter 5 ends with Haman pridefully recounting his greatness. So I think Esther 6 begins with servants recounting Ahasuerus' greatness to him. It makes more sense of his response than trying to find something boring to put him to sleep. He's, he, he, because then uh, when he hears how Mordecai saved him from an assassination attempt, he wants to remember the great reward he gave Mordecai. What, what was done for him? Tell me how great I treated this guy who saved me. And when they tell him he didn't do anything for Mordecai, he's shocked. You know, because Persian kings were known especially for their lavish rewards for loyalty. So this is really more than an oversight. It's a blemish on his reputation. It's also a danger to his safety. What incentive is there to save the king from an assassination the next time if he's a king who doesn't reward loyalty? Why have someone stick their neck out for someone who won't reward loyalty? And so he asks who's in his court to give counsel on what should be done for Mordecai. And they say, well, Haman just walked in. And so they say, or so he says to them, let him come in. Excuse me. 
Now, before we move on to the next scene, <clears throat> let's notice what we learn about God's providence in this first scene in verses 1 to 5. And maybe I can figure out what's going on. All right. Mordecai and Esther have no idea about Haman's plan. Now, they might have been able to hear the sound of the gallows' construction ringing in the night, but they wouldn't have been able to see what was being built in the darkness. And even if they could see the gallows, they wouldn't have known they were intended for Mordecai. Uh, okay, well, here's just someone else who did something wrong and the king's going to kill. They would have no idea that they were intended for Mordecai. Mordecai's plan so far for Esther to go to the king has worked, and Esther has won the king's favor, and the king has told her that he, uh, is, uh, he offered his assurance that he will do whatever she asks him. Yet they're unaware now that Mordecai is on death's doorstep because of Esther's delay, and the genocidal edict is still intact. But God, but God, though his hand is hidden, those with eyes to see it can see it everywhere in verses 1 to 5. Uh, who keeps the king awake? If it's true, as Psalm 4 says, it's the Lord who gives sleep and peace. Well, it's God. Uh, why does Ahasuerus call for the Chronicles to be read rather than calling for someone from the two harems he has? And out of all the things... In the Chronicles, how does the foiled assassination plot over four years earlier get read right when morning dawns? And why on this night, of all nights, if Ahasuerus was sleepless one night later, it would have been too late to reward Mordecai. And how is Haman in the court at the exact moment the king wants advising? As R.C. Sproul regularly quipped, chance? Not a chance. <laughs> Friends, this is the glory of God's providence on display. As Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It was on this night of all nights that Ahasuerus was sleepless in Susa because this was the night God began executing his salvation, not only for Mordecai, that's just the first domino that will fall as the Lord begins to save his people from the genocidal edict. All the while, they were all sleeping and unaware. They had no idea what was going on, and yet God began moving in the middle of the night. So what confidence Esther 6 gives God's people that when we face seen or unseen circumstances, God isn't unaware, nor is he unable to do something about it. In fact, we can trust in God's timing that it is always perfect, even when we want him to hurry up a little bit. Hours away, Mordecai is probably still in bed, or if morning has just broken, he's at least groggily getting up, making whatever Persian kind of coffee they drank early in the morning. Just meandering about his house before he goes, sits at the gate all day, unaware that Haman, in that moment, is about to ask the king 
to impale him on a gallows for all to see. It's in these moments when we'd like God to hurry up that we can trust that his timing is always perfect. Because when sinful humanity most needed God to act, he did it in the perfect time. Listen to Galatians 4. But when the fullness, the perfectness of time had come, when everything God had done for ages past finally lined up, when everything clicked right into place, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And while, what was true of us while God began this? And when the perfect time came, well, it was while we were still enemies. It was while we were children of God's just wrath. It was while we were ungodly. And at the perfect time, Jesus was born to die to reconcile us to God. We were just like Mordecai in these hours in Esther. We were unaware on the path to death. But God graciously moved to save his people in the perfect time through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Again, at just the right time. And if our triune God has done all that for his people, we can trust him in the little things of daily life, can't we? We can peacefully lay our heads on our pillow each night knowing that no matter what we face, including all the what-ifs that might be wandering around your head in the middle of the night. No matter what we face, if we are God's, then he will keep us safely, always and forever. And that safety will show up at the perfect time, which we see at the start of this second scene in Esther 6, trading places, trading places. So when the king summons Haman, you can imagine his delight that he's been waiting for all night now to finally deal with his enemy, Mordecai. But what happens before Haman can even get a word out? Well, the king speaks first and asks Haman a question in verse 6. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, Mordecai, or Haman came in focused on Mordecai, but here again is God's hidden hand at work, knocking Haman off course. As Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now, literally, the phrase there is said in his heart, not said to himself. He said it to himself, but the phrase there is said in his heart, showing us what rules Haman's heart, what sits on the throne, what he loves most. Haman came in to talk about Mordecai, but God now gets him to talk about the thing that matters most to Haman himself. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, Haman lives in a world where everyone, including the king, revolves around him. And so he's eager to be made much of. He's so eager for the world's honor and praise. He's so eager to be known and loved. And we see that in Haman's answer in verses 8 and 9, which reveals his deepest desires. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. 
And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Wearing the king's robes and riding the king's horse, having the crown set on the head, being publicly lauded in the streets, is as close to being king one could get. While Haman could never be king, he wants the king, the most important person in the world, to honor him for all to see and hear. It's not just that he wants the honor. It's not the honor he he wants per se. He wants the whole world to see how great he is and how the greatest person in the world thinks he's great. Three times in this short scene, Haman thinks or says, the man whom the king delights to honor. Because that's what Haman desperately desires. And the thought that it was about to be his made him completely forget why he was even in the room in the first place. He came in, Thinking about Mordecai, now all he can think about is himself. Notice the king's response make Haman think for as long as he can that it is finally all his. Look at verse 10. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so. You can just see the joy filling Haman's face and the smile getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And do so to Mordecai the Jew. What did you, what just happened? Oh, you know, he sits at the king's gate, which is pretty ironic that the king tells him that. He's like, I know. He doesn't stand every time I pass the king's gate. I know who Mordecai the Jew is, and I know where he is. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. (laughs) Great idea, Haman. Do it right now. Go grab my robes and my horse, as you have said, and do so. To Mordecai. Have you ever been in a situation where something happened that was so shocking that there's like ringing in your ears and you can't really see anything straight anymore? Time goes very, very slowly all of a sudden. The room begins to spin and you you wonder if this is real life. I bet Haman must have felt something like that in this moment, as he trades places with Mordecai. I mean, everything he longed for, everything he wanted, what his heart wanted most, and what he began to believe was about to be his, was actually going to the man he hated most. The man he wanted to impale upon 75-foot gallows and heap the greatest shame he could upon for all to see. He wanted nothing more than to lead Mordecai's demise. But now Haman must lead the city to heap praises upon him rather than shame. God has humbled the proud and he has exalted the humble. Remember what Mordecai and the Jews in Susa were just doing for three days. They had brought themselves low. They were fasting. They put on sackcloth and ashes. But God brought Mordecai up 
three days later into royal robes of majesty. And the proud, who for many days were just going about like the world revolved around him, the proud was now made the humble's servant. Haman went grasping for praise, and his pride went before his fall. Now, what do we do here with this second scene? Well, we must be careful, as we've done so far in Esther, to be careful not to moralize this part of the story. The point isn't be like Mordecai or don't be like Haman. That's not not the point. The Bible speaks often about humility and pride, but its message is not just go and be like Mordecai or go and don't be like Haman, because that inevitably will lead to failure and shame and more guilt. It will lead you to feel even worse because you can't do what you want to do or you do what you don't want to do. Have you ever just tried harder to do what you know you're supposed to be doing and then went on for the rest of your life to do it perfectly? Well, brothers and sisters, killing pride doesn't begin with what you need to do. In our sin, the human heart just can't simply humble itself out of pride. If you try, you'll either be tempted, ironically, to more pride at how much you've humbled yourself. (laughs) You're like, ah, it's Wednesday. I've been doing pretty great this week at humbling myself. So (laughs) you're just going to rack up more pride. Or you'll be tempted to deep despair because it won't even take you to Wednesday to realize that you are not very humble. (laughs) Killing pride doesn't begin with something you need to do. It begins with knowing who delights in you. It begins with knowing who delights in you. All Haman wants is to be known and loved, which in itself is not sinful. Where you go to fulfill that desire can be. And the only one who can fulfill perfectly that desire to be known and loved is God. Yet our sin doesn't make us worthy of the king of the universe's delight. But rather than making us bear the shame and death our sin deserved, God sent his son at the perfect time in whom he eternally and perfectly delighted in, to trade places with his people. He sent his son to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became our servant willingly and went to the cross so that we who should have never again known the king's delight could hear it said of those united by faith to his son Jesus, You are my child. You are my adopted sons in whom I am well pleased. Jesus traded places with you so that you might know the king of the universe, love and delight. That, brothers and sisters, is the beginning of the end of our pride. Not starting with something you need to do, but starting in who delights in you because of his son Jesus. And it's the beginning of the end of our pride because if all that was done in spite of what we deserved in our sin, 
And in no part because of anything we did or could do. Well, then the only thing we can boast in is Jesus. And the amazing love that both planned and accomplished our salvation. And so it's not that we don't have to kill pride. It's not that we just dismiss all the commands in Scripture. It's just that the the obedience to them, the following of them, the carrying out of those things never begin with us, but what God has done in Christ by the Spirit who empowers us to do what God has commanded. And so it's not that we don't have to kill pride, but that we don't start with what we must do. We start with God's great pleasure in His Son, Jesus, which becomes God's great pleasure in His people who are united to Jesus by faith. And since God isn't greatly pleased with his people because of anything they did, that means there isn't anything they can do to lose God's great pleasure or delight. He will always have great delight in his people because he perfectly delights in his son whom they're united to. And so what does this mean? It means you're not your greatest accomplishment, nor are you your greatest failure. You're not your bank account's balance. You're not your marital status or relationship status. You're not your job title or lack of one. If you are in Christ, brother and sister, you're a child of the Most High God, and He delights in you because of Christ. And simply because of Christ. He delights in you simply because He wants to, simply because He chose to. Simply because he planned to. Simply because he accomplished it. Simply because he will forever, for all eternity, for the glory of his grace. He delights in you. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can change that. Because Jesus traded places with you. And that then leads to our third and final scene. The king was sleepless. For God began executing his plan of salvation. Haman and Mordecai have traded places and the dominoes are now continuing to fall because of that. But the third and final scene of Esther 6 is gospel hope. Gospel hope. After trading places with Mordecai, Haman again returns home to his wife and friends and he's not filled with wrath this time. He is covered in shame. Pride has gone before his fall. Last time he returned home furious. This time he is filled with shame. And he again recounts many deeds. However, this time, unlike at the end of chapter 5, these deeds aren't about his greatness, but about the great turn of events. That the gallows have been built. That the king asked him to come in that he was on the edge of leading Mordecai's demise, and yet he had to lead his enemy through the city square as the people heaped praises upon him rather than Haman. And again, his wife speaks. But unlike last time, her words now are a solemn warning. A solemn warning. Look at the end of verse 13. If Mordecai whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. 
Of course, this is just the beginning of God's judgment against Haman. You have begun to fall, she says, knowing that this is, or uh, foreshadowing that this is not just the first thing that's going to come to Haman. But then she says, this Mordecai, who is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. And Zeresh's words reveal yet again God's hidden hand here in Esther chapter 6, for she speaks better than she knows. She speaks better than she knows. She's a Persian Gentile. The covenant promises have not been given to her. Maybe she's heard about the Jews. Maybe their, um, their fame or reputation or, or the reputation of their God has gone before them. But the covenant promises are not hers, and yet she speaks here better than she knows. Because the phrase is of the Jewish people is literally the seed of the Jews. The seed of the Jews. What does that remind you so far of our story in Esther? The word seed. Well, remember what's unfolding in Esther is not just Mordecai against Haman, not just some guy's injured ego who then goes overboard. This is the deep-seated enmity between a Benjaminite and an Agagite, an Israelite and an Amalekite. Even further back, the seed of the woman and the seed of who? The serpent. And here in Esther 6, in a house in Susa, recorded for us by the Holy Spirit, God has a Gentile woman proclaim the gospel promise that God's purposes of salvation can't be overcome. Can't be overcome. Lots of things can be overcome in our world, can't they? Oakland County can't even plow streets. It took them a long time to get to my neighborhood. They were plowing the main road, Updike, and so all that snow left a huge snowbank at the end of my street, which I tried to plow through, which then Dave Proper had to come help me out of. My car can't overcome snow. Salt can't overcome very cold temperatures. Plows can't even plow the streets right now. There's lots of things in our daily life that just show that just the littlest things can overcome them. Just think about your past week and all your best laid plans. How many of them faced things that overcame them? That they didn't go the way you planned or hoped or wanted or thought they should? Things in our life are overcome almost on a daily basis. And yet here, we're reminded of the gospel promise that God's promise of salvation cannot be overcome. No matter how dark the days get, no matter how long God seems to delay in keeping his salvation, no matter how strong or wise or wealthy or important or powerful God's enemies or your enemies can be, God's promises to save his people can't be overcome. He will never fail to save his people. And we know this because of God's past actions continually point that even in the most dire situations, when there was 
no hope out, or humanly speaking, we had no idea how God would keep his promise this time. He never failed, did he? But Zeresh's word don't just point us to past activity. They actually point to the last day. If, if Mordecai, your enemy, is of the Jewish seed, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. It also points us to the last day, the last day of human history, when Jesus returns to make all things new and put all things right and put all enemies under his feet once and for all, when all will see and hear Jesus return to save his people once and for all. And on that day, every remaining enemy will surely fall before the king of the universe. And so, friends, if your hope is not in Christ alone, if it's in you or your accomplishments or your deed or your, your life hopefully outweighs, your life's good hopefully outweighs your life's bad and, and you are on your own trying to make a name for yourself in this world, Zeresh's chilling warning to a, her husband is a chilling warning to you this morning. That if you are not united to God's Son, the only Savior, Jesus, by faith, you will surely fall before him one day. But if you hear him calling today, and the hope of the gospel promise that is yours, not because of anything you do, but all by grace, as God opening your ears to hear Jesus calling, if you hear him calling, do not harden your heart and turn away, but turn to him and repent and trust in him today. Not only will you find life, but you'll find in Jesus the deepest desires of your heart in him as well. And brothers and sisters, what is a chilling warning to all who don't believe is actually at the same time a thrilling hope for all who do. God will not fail to safely keep every one of his children in whom he greatly delights. He saves, not with gritting teeth and disappointment. He does so delightfully because he is one with his son who gave his life for you. And they are united together to not let one of his children slip through his head. For the glory of his name, he delights in you and delights to pour out mercy and grace. So what is a chilling warning to those who don't believe is our thrilling hope that God will not fail to safely keep every one of his children in whom he greatly delights. And so rather than going out and trying to earn that delight, it's already yours, so live from it. That's why Paul says later, do not grow weary in doing good. I don't know how the new year finds you. But I hope this morning the Spirit gives you a renewed sense of God's delight in you and Jesus. And fresh fuel to go out and not grow weary in doing good. To not grow weary in dying to self. And not, grow, uh, and not growing weary in killing sin. So that you may have, walk in the power of the Spirit. To put to death the deeds of the Spirit so that you might live. To not grow weary in taking up your cross daily and following our humble Savior. 
because we know a great harvest is coming in God's perfect timing for every one of his children in whom he delights. Let's pray. So, Father, we praise you for your glorious goodness of your grace to us in Jesus. The depth of your pleasure in all those who are united to Jesus by faith. That it pleased you to adopt us as sons so that we might all receive the inheritance. And that inheritance is sealed by your Holy Spirit. And so help us to never live for your delight, but from it. For your good pleasure, but from the good pleasure that is already ours in Jesus. And may we go out living in that love, united not just to Jesus, but to our brothers and sisters in Christ, so that the world might know whose we are as we live for the glory of your name among our neighbors and the nations, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and conclude in worshiping the God who delights in his children.